heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to Season 5 of the Wine Crush Podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Wine Crush Podcast. We are Season 5, Episode 7, here in beautiful downtown McMinnville in our great, cute little quaint studio here. And we have one returning guest, and she was kind of she was kind of a tag along the first time around, and she is standing alone this time. And then we have a brand new guest to go with her. So we're going to start with a brand new guest. We're going to start with Tom Fitzpatrick from Elevé Wine. Welcome in, Tom. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, I am so glad we have finally made this happen because we spoke... I think season one, almost five years ago at this point in time, in between COVID and work and everything else going on, it just has taken a while for us to get kind of back around. So, so glad. Yes. Finally. Yes. No, no kidding. So, and I think we actually started, you were head winemaker up at Aloro. So, that's technically why we met. That's where I met you. Yes. Exactly. And then we've just our friendship and relationship and business and whatever else has blossomed. So, Let's talk about Elevé Wine. It's you and your lovely wife, France, and your cute dog that I wish you would have brought because he's so fuzzy and Oh, he would have loved to have Fluffy. Come. Yeah. Uh, Kelly and Sterling have an amazing fluffy dog too, so it could have been Dog Central in here today. So I don't remember exactly all of the things that we talked about as far as like your story and everything else. So I'm going to let you take the opportunity to tell us about your story. How did you get into the wine industry and how did you get to where we're at today. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how far back you want me to go. Let's but... go back where it's interesting and colorful. Okay. So when I was two years old. Perfect. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> My life at two years old is pretty colorful. So we can, <laughs> we may be here for a while if we start that far back. Uh, so I grew up outside Chicago. I had a roommate in college and went to school at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, that lived in the Bay Area, that wanted to bring his car and his dog back to school. And so I flew out and we were going to do a road trip back. And we spent a couple days wandering Sonoma and Napa counties. And that was my first glimpse at the industry and just loved what I saw. So did you drink wine or were you interested in wine on any level before that? No. So the bug bit you in Napa, Sonoma area. Yeah. And I think it was the bug for me was more the industry and kind of the agricultural aspect and kind of just my perceptions of what it would be like to grow and make wine. And then I, we went, you know, we did our road trip a month back to school and it was forgotten about. And then my wife and I moved to Seattle in the early nineties and that interest was reignited essentially. As far as like being in Seattle, I mean, were there really many wineries up there at that point in time that you could really visit, you could enjoy, you could explore up there? There were some, not like today. Chateau Saint-Michel, Columbia Winery outside of, of Seattle. And there were some small operations. My first job was with a really tiny producer that actually grew all his own fruit on Bainbridge Island called Bainbridge Island Winery and Vineyard. And so that was my first kind of foray into the industry. How does your vision from originally being in Napa, Sonoma match up with when you actually got into the industry itself as working on Bainbridge Island. Yeah. Um, and and I should say on Bainbridge Island, I took some time off of work and went and worked and then came back to my job. But yeah, that was a very rustic version of the experience probably at the time. But I think it was what I thought it would be. Yeah. Because that led to me wanting to pursue it professionally. How did you get to Oregon then? So yeah, you, you so, go from Chicago. Did you grow up in Chicago? I did. Okay. Yeah. Chicago. Sonoma, Napa, Seattle, and then now you're in the Willamette yeah. Valley. Yeah. So after that experience, uh, decided I'd like to pursue this professionally. My wife was interested in a little bit of time off of work. So we actually put everything we own in storage, sold our house, and moved to New Zealand for a short little bit. And so I worked in New Zealand for three quarters of a year, decided when we go back to the States, that Napa would be kind of a good destination. So we moved back to the States, moved down to Napa. I worked for a handful of years in Napa with wineries, 
went back to UC Davis to do my grad work in viticulture and enology. And then we headed to France to uh, Burgundy for about a year. And then I think all along we had our sights set on Oregon. And working in Burgundy really reinforced that interest in, in wanting to be in Oregon. It's so interesting because you've kind of been all over the globe and all over the map in these different, you know, these different climates, these different, just culturally different situations. I mean, Napa isn't anything like Seattle, nor is it anything like Chicago. And then you throw in France and New Zealand into the mix, and then you end up in Oregon. So you've kind of got these little snippets from all these different little places to kind of utilize and then make your own, I guess. Yeah. I think kind of culturally different, lots of things different about those areas, but Making wine and growing grapes has its differences, but is very similar across all those areas. You're now in the Willamette Valley. What was your first move? Yeah, so we show up in Oregon, and the vision is to do something of our own. And the vision is to do something focused around terroir. It is. And I was going to actually ask you to define it for everybody who's listening that may or may not know what it means. I would love to, because most people don't completely understand it, I feel like. It's a very simple idea. It's this idea of the flavor of a place. So there's kind of two parts when you're talking about terroir. There's a reference to environment, and there's a reference to the flavor profile that environment delivers, essentially. So in the case of grapes and wines, it's this idea that you can grow grapes in a particular place that ultimately makes a wine that has a distinctive profile and personality that you can see year after year that you can directly associate back to that place. That's actually a very lovely way of putting that. I've always understood it as just basically like time and place in a bottle. And I think that's a simplistic version of it. I think that's kind of true. Yeah, Yeah. but it's not near as eloquent as what you just said. Yeah, I mean, it is flavor that an environment produces essentially. And so we we showed up with this vision to want to explore the valley in search of unique and distinct, and I'll say dramatic environments, that deliver unique, distinct, and dramatic expressions of Pinot. And it started with our estate property that Sterling was familiar with even probably before I was, Sterling sitting here. Yet we have not introduced the dynamic duo sitting yeah. next to you at the table. And with. he's a quiet, shy guy, so he's not going to chime in. But <laughs> <laughs> You but, all find that's not the truth here in about 15 yeah. minutes. So the, the first step was that we had identified this property that was planted by Archery Summit back in 1998 that Gary Andrews, the founder of Archery Summit, kept when he left the organization. And 10 years later in 2008, the year after we arrived in Oregon, we purchased it from Gary. And uh, I had tasted the wine from the site. I was familiar with the site. It had a teardown on it that we fixed up. And we immediately took over as growers. I was making wine for another winery. So in my free time, I was growing grapes. We didn't have the funds to start a winery project of our own. So we were farming the site and selling the fruit to other wineries. And we did that for a number of years before we saved up enough money to make a little bit of wine and ultimately kind of grow that up. Gary Anders is a big name and a pioneer in the industry locally. I mean, you see his name on something and you're like, this must have been kind of a special place if he chose it. So that's actually pretty cool. And I I hadn't really realized that when I had visited up there and I actually had found out from somebody else that that's that's who owned that. So pretty cool on that front. So now that you're up there, you know, what are your thoughts? Did you choose correctly? Is it what you thought it was going to be? Well, and so some people kind of think about vineyards and wines in terms of kind of best, what's best. And I don't. I think in terms of profile and personality and style. And and so my interest was working with lineup of diverse and different, you know, unique sites that deliver different profiles. And so this was a profile that I was very much interested in working with, which is a a more elegant, graceful, ethereal style of wine that the site delivers, which I love. And it's you know it's a wine that's all about subtlety and grace and but we've kind of over the years since started working with additional sites that have very different personalities and in fact I brought two wines that are maybe somewhat of the bookends of what we work with from kind of our graceful elegant ethereal elevé vineyard to our 
much more concentrated, yeah, kind of spicy, structured uh, Meredith Mitchell. I think that's a great place to say my glass needs to be refilled. Yeah. And yeah. so let's do that. And then let's talk about some more wine. Tom wasn't kidding when he said that there was definitely a difference between these two wines that um, he brought today. The first one was very elegant and light-bodied, it seems. This one is very dark and just a gorgeous color. So let's talk about wine. What all are you making? Let's Actually, let's talk about these two that we've been drinking, because I think that's a really great place to start. Yeah. And then I want to talk about some of the other things and projects that you've got going as well. Yeah. So um, our Elevé wine growers focus is Pinot Noir. And as we kind of talked about, this kind of focus around terroir and essentially presenting an exploration of kind of the personalities of the Willamette Valley. So we do a lineup of four single vineyard bottlings of Pinot, all with very different and distinct and unique personalities and profiles. And so you're tasting two of them, two of them that are, I think, quite different from each other. I would say they're vastly different. Yeah. And I mean, I don't have a like a very finite palate, but- You the, can tell the difference here. Oh boy. <laughs> yes. Oh boy. On so many different levels. And yeah. I mean, they're both delicious. There's no subtlety. Here. No, there isn't. And I mean, not that I'm an expert or on anything for that matter, but if I- Actually, I'm just going to shut up and let you explain it because, yeah. I, I mean, I know my explanation in my head, but I very well could screw it up. And, so. one, and one of the things that we did with this is all of our wines are essentially, for the most part, the same clones of Pinot Noir. So Dijon 777 and Pomard. So what we wanted to do was really, you know, showcase the influence of environment on on these wines. And so essentially, for the most part, these two wines are the same plant material of Pinot Noir, planted in very different places here in the valley, not too far apart from each other, made by me. As you said, there's no subtlety in the difference between what you see and smell and taste in these wines. And that's the influence of environment on the, the flavors of these wines. It's, you know, I talk to people kind of throughout most of my days. It seems like conversation always goes back to wine on some level, whether it's a winemaker or it's a vineyard manager or somebody who has a vineyard and just people who drink wine or they see what I do and they think I'm an alcoholic is really what they think. I think a lot of times, you know, but the question always goes back to wine and it goes back to terroir and why is there such a difference in these? Let's just use Pinot as an example because it's a very evident differentiation in color. So some of them are very elegant and light and light-bodied. The second one, very magenta-like and, I don't know, it's very jewel-toned and it's richer and it just whatever. And so I get you know a lot of, you know, they call BS on this whole terroir thing and does it really express it and does it whatever. And I'm like, Yes. And I would have said the same thing. I would have said, eh, it can't really be that big of a deal, but it really identifies the different sites, the different microclimates within the valleys and um, changes the wine. It does. Yeah. And, it, you know, environment isn't one thing, right? It's a lot of stuff. It's soil, it's elevation, it's aspect, it's climate, mesoclimate, microclimate. It's a lot of, a lot of variables kind of feeding in. I'll tell you a little bit about these two wines. I'm going to talk about them in terms of the environment of the site, and then a little I'll say a little bit about the profile of the wine. So the first wine you tasted, Elevé Vineyard, Dundee Hills, the top of the vineyard's 540 feet elevation, south slope. The soils are volcanic. Jory is the soil series there. And, you know, as we kind of talked about, and as, as you could sort of see, it's a little less pigmented. Um, relative to some other things, a little more kind of mid-weight. It's very silky in texture. It's very red-fruited. I get raspberries and cherries and very floral. The Meredith Mitchell, the second wine that you're tasting, it's actually from the McMinnville AVA. It's in what I would call the foothills of the coast range. And it's right in front of the opening of the Van Duzer corridor into the valley. So for those in your audience that don't know what that is, there's a corridor that cuts through the coast range that allows marine influence into the valley. You can kind of think of it like a wind tunnel of 
marine air, essentially. And this is on one of the ridgelines that sticks out in front of that opening where that corridor empties into the valley. So this is a site that gets direct, what we call Van Duzer influence. It's windier, it's cooler, but on top of it, the soils are very shallow. So these vines really struggle and it delivers a really different profile in the wines. It's very highly pigmented. I would argue that it's probably one of the most pigmented pinots I've ever seen. Along with that, it delivers a lot of tannin, so a lot of structure to the wine. It's more kind of plush velvet in texture. Um, it has a bit more weight than the Elevé. And it's more darker fruit, kind of, I, I say, boysenberry or black raspberry and cranberry. Uh, and it has lots of herbs, very kind of herbaceous in a good way. I would say that, you know, again, not knowing a lot, but knowing some, that you see this profile of the Van Duzer corridor wines like this often. So it seems like they are those darker black fruits and the currants and stuff. And it's just, yeah, it's like almost like a punch of fruit, you know, when you do drink it versus, you know, the Dundee Hills with the original one that we drink. It is. It's much silkier. It's more elegant. It's more, you know, it's, it is lighter bodied. And it's just, it's so interesting to see virtually the same clones of wine, grapes, whatever, probably treated the same for the most part, you know, when you get it into the winery and you come out with two completely vastly different wines. So the whole idea of terroir. Mother nature is powerful. Is so interesting with those Van Duzer corridor winds because I live in Eola Hills, you know, kind of in the foothills there on the on the coastal range side of it. And you know, sometimes you really think that you can smell the ocean and we are easily an hour from the beach. And I mean, those winds do amazing things because we are five miles from the town of Amity. But if the winds are right, it sounds like the train that is running through Amity is running through our front yard because it just brings all that sound, you know, up into really, you know, where we live. So you can only imagine what it does with the winds and the influences of the ocean and everything else to affect this fruit even more than it would somewhere further into the valley. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Am I not too far off? No, yeah. Look at me sounding like I yeah. maybe know a little wow. bit what Look I'm talking you. about. Well, five <laughs> years into this and I've learned a thing or two. Pinot is just so interesting on so many different levels because it is, it really speaks to the terroir. It seems like more than most other grapes. I know Riesling is the other one that really kind of picks up the terroir thing. Um, yeah, it, you know, the way that people describe Pinot is is having transparency that allows you to see the influence of environment more than other varieties. And I think maybe what that really means is some varieties have such dominant varietal character that it's harder to see the influence of environment as much on those, whereas Pinot has less so. It's it's more it has more of a transparency and and so the that influence of environment is is so much greater for Pinot Noir. It's kind of like a looking glass. Yeah. It seems like kind of. So let's talk about some other things that you are doing as well. Because are you doing more than Pinot? We are. Yeah. I mean, Pinot is our focus. Mm -hmm. So we do over a thousand cases of Pinot. And I should say we're a tiny winery. So we're maybe, would we be like a micro winery? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Boutique sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like boutique. Boutique. Yeah. We are boutique. So we do over a thousand cases of Pinot, and then we probably do 300 cases of some other things. And so we've kind of restricted our focus to, for the most part, just Pinot Noir and Riesling. And I'm interested in doing with Riesling what we've been doing with Pinot. Maybe Sterling can help me out here since he knows sites so well in the valley. I've been working with the same Riesling vineyard now for a number of years, but I'm looking for other sites that deliver of different expressions in Riesling. So kind of the same, like this terroir focus in the very early stages of exploring terroir with Riesling, but I'd like to do that. I've worked with a couple different Riesling sites that were not different enough for me to continue working with both. So I, I have just one that I'm working with. So uh, Riesling, and then I do various things with Pinot. I do a white Pinot Noir. I do a rosé of Pinot Noir. And then just last year, I kind of added in Gruner Veltliner just because I really, it, it, it was Gruner that I loved and I finally was able to get my hands on it. That's it. That's kind of all that we're doing. That's one of those that you hear pop up every once in a while. And it there's always like a little sparkle when somebody says Gruner Veltliner. And because I think it is a special grape that is unique 
there's not a lot of it. And it has a lot of expression, makes a great wine. Exactly. It's not very common in the valley. I don't think. Sterling, how much gruner do you think is planted in the valley? Ten acres. <laughs> Actually, I think it's a. I think it's eleven. I think it's eleven. Yeah. There we go. Now you know, people. We got eleven acres of Gruner in the entire valley. So when you find a bottle, you better buy it and run with it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, what are the plans for the future? Any other things maybe you want to work with, or so we, you know, in terms of Pinot, we continue to be on the lookout for additional sites that deliver dramatic and different and diverse expressions of Pinot. Maybe Sterling can help us with that if you know of anything. <laughs> Sterling's very connected to lots of vineyards in the Valley, but so always on the lookout. In fact, Meredith Mitchell was a new addition starting in 2019. Uh, and essentially the way that came down was Bill Sweat, who was the gentleman that was leasing this site, brought his distributor from New Hampshire out and we kind of did a tasting at our in our tasting room and we talked terroir and we looked at all these different expressions of, of Pinot from these single vineyard bottlings that we did. And at the end of the tasting, he said, I have a site that you should look at. And he said, you should come over and taste it. And so I went over thinking he's going to pour me the current release. And he did this like seven vintage vertical so that I could see it in various vintages, warm vintages, cool vintages. And it was striking the personality of this wine. And it had a distinctive personality that could express itself regardless of the vintage. So it, you know, deep down, regardless of whether it was a warm year with ripe fruit or a cool year with cooler, you know, less ripe, you could see the personality and, and profile of this wine. And so, yeah, so we started working with it. That is the one thing I love about the Oregon wine industry that I have noticed is that people are willing and wanting to help each other discover these new wonderful gems that are kind of hidden out there. Because Bill is one of the owners at Winderley, and most other businesses don't want to help another business do something great that could potentially be a competition or, you know, compete with them or whatever. And I think Bill is wonderful. He's been on the show as well. Yeah, he is. Um, but I just, I love the fact that there's so much camaraderie kind of within the industry with stuff like that still. Yeah, certainly on the production and growing side of things. I've never encountered a situation where I felt like somebody wasn't willing to be helpful in, in Oregon. Yeah. It is a wonderfully collaborative industry. Yeah. You hope to see that in so many things, and I just don't think it's always there. Yeah. But the wine industry, even though Oregon has grown, it still seems like it's very much that way in, in so many different respects. Yeah. So. so in the insurance business, it's cutthroat, right? It is. You have no idea. Yes. The insurance business is not like the wine business on that level. So now. Not at all. But, you know, that's a whole nother show. Yeah. Let's talk about your sweet little- And I have a podcast where I interview insurance individuals. Oh, kind sweet. Kind of at our place. So <laughs> I'm going to have you on. Okay. Well, I will be waiting for that invitation because I have not heard of that yet. And uh, <laughs> nor have I gotten the invitation. And I'm thinking that I should have been first on the list since I do your insurance. Yep, right. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yes. But, you know- there you go. I didn't, you know, you weren't first on my show either. So, you know. That's true. Fair's fair. <laughs> yes. Well, and you're such a sparkling personality. You would put his podcast on the map, That's I'm sure. That's true. Yeah. I can do some song and dance. Because <laughs> um, whereas am, you have a, a passion for wine, I have a passion for insurance. Oh you're God. such a liar. <laughs> Nobody has a passion for insurance except for maybe me and, and maybe my assistant. <laughs> so, but, you know, thank you. That yeah. makes my heart happy. I want to talk about your sweet little tasting room and, and spot for people to come up and visit you yeah. and visit the fluffy sweet dog. Yes. Uh, I believe his name is Seven. Four. Four. Damn it. Yeah. I was so close. Yeah. And I was only three off. So Why? I am Thomas. Seven is the jackass from yeah. Grizzly Adams, I think uh, is where I got that from. So <laughs> So I am Tom Martin Fitzpatrick the third, and our dog is Tom Martin Fitzpatrick the fourth. There we go. Four. That's We just call him four. Makes perfect sense. It's it's too hard to say. Come here, Tom Martin Fitzpatrick the Fourth. It's too long. That's yeah. not very Four endearing. Is and yes, it, it really is. I think dogs need like a one syllable name or something that's easy to holler at them when you need them back. So, so if people were going to come up and come tasting, what do they need to do? When are you open? Yeah. So uh, our website is 
elevewines.com, E-L-E-V-E-E-W-I-N-E-S.com. And there you'll find our email address and a phone number, which is my cell phone number. And you can email us, text me, call me, and set up an appointment. And it's a very mom and pop experience. It's just my wife and myself. And so we are there to tend to folks personally and kind of converted our essentially our garage into a tasting space. But it's in a beautiful setting in the Dundee Hills. Yeah, it is very beautiful. And it's, I've been up there when it's been foggy and you can see like this fog kind of hanging on the vines. And I've been up there when it's been sunny and beautiful and just, it's awesome. And then yeah. you get to meet Four. You can meet Four. He's yes. our Bernice Mountain Dog. <laughs> yes, he is beyond adorable. So I'm sorry I called him Seven. That's okay. I knew <laughs> it was a number. <laughs> Jeez. So. Seven's cute though too. It, it is cute. He was yeah. very cute. I Maybe that's why I want a donkey so bad and my husband has told me no. Right. Multiple, We mul tell people that times. sometimes, that we really wanted a horse, but we settled for four. Yeah. Well, you know. Sometimes it's easier to throw them outside and you don't have to shoe them and do all the other things if, you know, with a dog. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been fun. I'm so glad we finally got this done and brought you into the office because you haven't even been into the new office. I haven't. No, it's a beautiful space. Yes. Well, thank you. So, tell France hello. I will. Because I haven't seen her for a while. And uh, we're going to shift gears and we're going to actually go to our new tasting segment that we started last time. We have a new snack. and. Uh, I'm going to bring it in. We're going to pour some wine and we will be right back to eat in front of everybody. So <laughs> hold tight. Everybody's got their wine. Okay. Everybody has their wine. Everybody has these lovely, let me see if I can say this right, sun-dried pesto palmiers that Allie from The Sweetest Spoon made for us again this week. So with this segment, we are also going to be giving you some discount codes to, to send some love and some business back to whoever we're featuring. So I'm still working on that. So please hold tight because there'll probably be some sort of nice little gifty gift code of some sort to um, order your own goodies to go with your wine. So what we want to do is to, this is a more of a savory type snack rather than sweet, which is what we had last time. So I have a Riesling and a Pinot, as does everybody else. And so I want to hear everybody's opinion on what they think about what goes with this and why. I'll start. Um, I really think that the, the sun-dried tomato pesto is adding a richness that requires the Pinot. Okay. There's a nice sweetness to the Riesling with a, you know, nice yeah. acid balance there. But I still think that that sun-dried tomato is coming in strong. And you really need the richness of the Pinot Noir to balance it out. That's okay. my opinion. Okay, well, I just tried it with the Riesling after I spilt it all over the table. You can't swirl in a plastic cup very well. So, okay, Tom, what do you think? What she said. <clears throat> No, I'm kidding. Um, actually, I'm I'm still I'm still tasting and exploring here. Give me one minute. Sterling, do you have any thoughts? I love pastries. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think it matters what kind of wine you drink as long as you love pastries. And you know, really, the whole point of this is to bring you know wine down to a snack and food level to where you can enjoy it with anything and everything. One of our favorite TV shows is the Great British Baking Show. So we are always watching how people are making different things and all these baked items. And this is really nicely made. It's light, crispy, perfectly crunchy with a nice flavor profile. So it's just, it's lovely with wine and good by itself. Does it get your Paul Hollywood handshake? I'd have to have other pastries to compare it with. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like, I like this with both of the wines. I actually, I feel like the Riesling holds up with this as well. I think it, this is a dry, a dry Riesling and uh, I like it with both. I like it with a red Pinot. I have the Elevé Vineyard 2019 Pinot and the Riesling. I think it could go either way. The Riesling has kind of a nice acidity. I think that kind of supports the kind of oiliness of the Palmier. Like the, like buttery. The, 
Yeah, like the croissant part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the actual pesto sun-dried tomato piece in the middle of it, I think changes and brings the richness at even more out of the Pinot. And I have the Meredith Mitchell Pinot just because I it was closest to me, so that's what I grabbed. And I yeah, I agree. The Riesling kind of yeah, cuts cuts that that butteriness of the cuts of the pastry the itself. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think both of these as well. It's so amazing what food and wine because it's changed the profile of both these wines a little bit and just the flavor that kind of pulls out of them so so the learning lesson is that pinot noir and riesling can be paired with anything there we go agreed i don't know if i'd fully agree with that (laughs) just because i've had some weird things and they just did not taste very good after you know whatever but this trust us yes home run alley on this for sure so don't forget Sweetest Spoon, you can find them on Instagram and they'll be eventually linked in our website and you can find them on our stuff and channels as well. So there we go. Tasting segment complete. And we are now going to shift over to Kelly Kidney and Sterling Fox with Mad Violets, who I have not introduced yet, even though they've been kind of introduced through our chitter chatter. Kelly has been with us when she was here with Fanny with Trout Lily last year, I think we determined so, Kelly, welcome back. Sterling, welcome welcome to downtown. Thank you. Let's talk about Mad Violets. Um, I didn't realize the meaning behind the name, which I know this is Sterling's third child, if I understand right, the one that's never going to move out and never going to leave, <laughs> yes. right? Our third child together. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the child you we go. had together. <laughs> Named after my stepchildren, Sterling's daughters, Madeline and Violet. See, there we go. We learn all kinds of new things. I just thought it was a really cool name for a flower. And it is, actually. Yeah. Also the name of a flower, a shooting star. It's a ephemeral that blooms in the spring right about now, only blooms for like a week. It's also known as a shooting star. And we didn't know this until we were kind of researching for the trademark to make sure nobody else was calling their wine mad violets. Bless you. And I found out that it's... The common name for a shooting star. And then we found a little patch of them in a vineyard close to us, like right across the road, actually, a field right across the road from us, took a picture, gave it to Violet, who's an amazing artist, and she did her artist rendering of the Mad Violet, and then the label designer put it on the label. So it's pretty sweet that we have Violet's art on the label. Yeah, that is absolutely very sweet. We bypassed the whole story of how you two got into the industry, and that's where all of this starts. And Sterling is going to talk, because I think I asked him several times when we were at the house not too long ago, and we always found something different to talk about. So let's start with Sterling and how you got into the wine industry and with what you're doing, because you are more on the vineyard side as your day job. And then this is your love child with the two of you together, correct? I like that. Okay, yes. there we go. I love that you have an imaginary child together. There's it's, there's no imagining these bottles in front of you, Tom. <laughs> this is real here. <laughs> well, it is a dream come true to have our own wine. I did start making the wine in our garage, and it was fun to do that. We didn't do it every year, but I did it you know, off and on. I did it all myself, and Kelly watched from afar, and then we were able to get to the point where we decided to make it a commercial thing in 2008. And to back up a little bit, because you asked me how I got here, I was working in restaurants while going to college, at least my first college stint, which which was in Eugene, Oregon. And I was working in some nice restaurants. And the wine bug bit me because I had a, a several coworkers who were professional waiters that had wine collections. And the distributors would come in, we'd taste the wines to pair with the meals. And it just, the whole thing was exciting and fun and just, you know, really amplified the whole fact that wine is just part of the meal in moderation and something to enjoy. And then I realized it was an Oregon industry that was up and coming and it just felt like a really fun thing to be a part of. So at that time when I was living in Eugene, I realized I wanted to study that. So I looked into the fact that Oregon State had a food and wine science program So I saved up some money and I started there in 1989. I started working for a winery locally. And then the rest is history that I was putting in vineyards by the time I got out of school in 94 and then started working for some larger brands and then was able to turn it into a vineyard management company, putting me in touch with all these great vineyards and winemakers. And it just became, you know, this whole part of my 
lifestyle and my passion together. And that's how the garage wine came about and just, you know, things evolved and it's just been wonderful. I'm, I couldn't be happier. Oh, what a great way to put it, especially with your wife sitting right next that's to so you. So sweet. <laughs> it's <laughs> true. <laughs> and truth is good. Yes. Yes. When you were here with Trout Lily last year with Fanny, I think you were moral support for Fanny. I think she was a little bit hesitant to come in and hang out with us all by herself, which was great. And you were a great part of that conversation as well. But we never got your backstory. Well, I moved to I, – I was living in Los Angeles, actually living in Venice, and I was working in a really high-end restaurant in Santa Monica. And I was looking for a change big change. I wanted out of California in the worst way. I'd been there for 10 years. I'd been in uh, Los Angeles area for six years and San Francisco for four years before that. I'd been pursuing acting, so I was waiting tables. Oh, let's let's just stop on that <laughs> right now because Tom was the spiller of the beans on your acting career because I had no idea. I've spent quite a bit of time with you in the last couple weeks and over the last year, and no one has ever said anything about your acting career. It was a long time ago. So what is your little claim to fame that we were just talking about that is just so sweet? And Goodness. I'm uh, I'm featured on a Star Trek game. And you're like a Romulan? A Romulan, yes. Not a Romulus, because I believe that is a shape, <laughs> but a Romulan. <laughs> exactly. I, I actually have a pretty great Polaroid from that day of shooting. It was six hours in makeup and... I mean, I lost my nose. My forehead came down to the tip of my nose. It's pretty remarkable. It was great. It was a great experience. And, you know, during my time living in San Francisco and Los Angeles, when I was in San Francisco, I was doing a lot of theater, which was amazing. And it was probably the most creative time of my acting career. And then I moved to Los Angeles because it was time to try to make a living. And it was really difficult. There were definitely years where I did make a living with my acting. And then there were the years that I had to do something else to pay the bills. And as I got older, it became harder because I am a woman in Hollywood. And so I started really thinking hard about what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go and what I wanted to be. And at my heart and soul, I'm an artist. And so it needed to be something creative. And uh, so I was waiting tables at a really high-end restaurant in Santa Monica called Michael's. It's still there on 3rd Street. And um, the sommelier was really passionate, very knowledgeable. And every night he'd open three bottles of wine and say, this goes with this special, this goes with this special, and this goes with this special. He would talk to us about where it was from, what it was all about. And then he would say, go out and sell it. And he really opened my mind to the wine world and how vast it is. So I was starting to get excited about wine in general. And then he took us on a field trip up into the Santa Barbara region. And it was actually standing in Brian Babcock's vineyard that I thought, I want to do this. I want to make wine. I had a complete aha moment. But I knew I didn't want to stay in California. I was done. I was done with Disneyland. I wanted out. And at this time, the sommelier had been opening beautiful wines from Oregon. This is way back in 97. So it was a very young industry. And the wines that he was opening were stunning. And I thought, well, this is a young industry. It might be easier for me to get in there. Maybe it won't matter how old I am or the color of my hair or how much I weigh, but I can still be an artist. And so I told him I wanted to go to Oregon and make wine. And he said, okay, I'll make some calls. And he got me an interview at Shehalem, and he got me an interview at Willie Kenzie. And Willie Kenzie offered me a position as a harvest intern. They said, we can guarantee two months of work, but that's it. And I said, great, I'm coming. And I went and I worked my butt off, and they offered me a position in the vineyard. So I stayed in the vineyard, and I worked for Die Crisp, me and 12 Mexican men, and <laughs> it was brutal. It was the hardest I've ever worked, but I learned so much. And then Di was leaving that position to go do Temperance Hill, a very well-known vineyard south. And I said, well, if you go, I'm just going to become a vineyard worker, and I really want to be a winemaker. 
And he said, well, let me, let me talk to some people. And he literally came back two days later and said, you know, David Lett's looking for some seller help. You want to talk to him at Irie? And I said, okay. And so I went and worked for David for a little over a year. Amazing education for me. And then I went to Tory Moore. And then after Tory Moore, I went to Oregon State, got my degree in enology and viticulture. It's no viticulture, enology and fermentation. And it's just kind of been an amazing journey ever since. We started Mad Violets in 2008. It feels great to still be in the game. We are boutique as well. We only do about 1,000 cases. I make wine for other clients in order to help pay for my third child. And the, the never, the never ending, never moving out money pit that the third right. child always is. Yes, right. But you know, after after twelve years at this, Mad Violets being alive and well, she's starting to pay for herself, starting to pay her own way through the world. Perfect, which is fantastic, and also keeping it small has been key. I think. Well, and it's not like you two don't have something else to do during your days. It's not like this isn't your retirement project where you have all day to dream about what's next. You have actual job jobs that are physically demanding, mentally demanding, and they make you tired. I was just going to add that our appreciation for Oregon wine was really fostered by trying small lot boutique wines that are made in small batches. And we all know everything from soap to whiskey is better in small batches. So we made Mad Violets to be in that groove, and we're not trying to grow it into some brand we can sell. It is really a labor of love, which it should be for your third child. <clears throat> and <laughs> and Kelly's glossing over a little bit because she's so modest. She went and worked at another half dozen wineries, including in Burgundy, to hone her skills after going to OSU and getting that degree. And so she's really accomplished, and it's been really fun to work with her and see how she makes wines, and she's good at at all the wines that she makes, I think. And so it's just fun. Each year we we are excited to make the most of the vintage, but realize that every vintage has its own character. And like Tom was saying earlier, each vintage adds an element to the terroir of that year that, of course, complements the site and the growing conditions and the the management. So to us, it's just really fun because it changes every single year and we have this fun challenge of trying to see how well we can do it. I'd like to add that we're in the neat position that we have our brand and we have our jobs. And therefore, we kind of release the wines as they're ready. We're not forced to bottle them before harvest. We're not forced to release them immediately. So our current release is 2016 of our reserve and 2015 of our Willamette Valley. And that's the way we like it because I also feel that the way that I handle the wines, they kind of freak out when I put them in tank. And then they freak out again when I put them into bottle. And they need time in bottle to come back to that amazingly beautiful, vibrant place that they were in barrel before I moved them. And that's kind of going into more of like a bottle shock type thing, correct? Exactly. And I don't think people realize that that's the case. And with wine, we've said it before and we'll say it again and we'll say it again and again and again, but it's still a living, breathing element thing, beast that never really dies. Yeah, right? I agree with that. So when you're moving it from place to place, I mean, it's like if you moved your kids literally from, you know... Chicago to LA to McMinnville to, you know, Joseph, Oregon, they're going to freak out every time you move them. And it's going to take a little time for everybody to settle down. Yes. And get to where you're pleasant again. <laughs> right. And comfortable. <laughs> yes. And hopefully you do get back to that place. But right. yeah, 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 sometimes it's easier than others, right? Yeah. Um, we also glossed over the fact that we did not know where you two met. And you're kind of this dynamic duo with this vineyard managers, you know, management side versus slash winemaker extraordinaire. So where did you two little lovebirds meet up and how did I this know happen? I true story of this. 
Ooh, I'd love we'll, to. We'll see if Tom has all the facts. Okay, <laughs> Tom, you're up. Let's hear it. I want to. No, 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 no. He's he has no, to. I do know the story. Okay, I no. want to hear it from Tom, and then I want you to correct I don't know him if where you he's want wrong. Me to share the story, do you? Yeah. Well, Maybe. let's see what so Tom's is, perception this... is. Is it rated R? No, no, no. Okay, just no. check. So this is the story as I know it: is that Kelly is at Irie Vineyards, and she's outside washing barrels. She's outside washing barrels, working hard. Tori Moore. Tori, Tori Moore? Tori Moore, I'm sorry. She's at next Tor- door to each other. <laughs> <laughs> so close. She's at Tori Moore washing barrels outside, and this strikingly handsome gentleman approaches, and she looks at him and says, I'm going to marry this man. And he walks into the winery, and I don't know what happens in between there. I'll fill in now. <laughs> so he's 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 got that part right about Kelly and everything else in general, and it's very sweet that he would remember that story. So you're right. Uh, I was married to someone else at the time, so I wasn't really paying attention to Kelly's loving glance. <laughs> Yet I did appreciate how special she is was at the time. I was just kept my head down, if you know what I mean. So I went into the winery to do some business, said hello, and left, and then. A few years later, two or three years later, when I wasn't married anymore, reconnected our interest in each other throughout industry events and started dating. And then love was born in our relationship that was really special. And I, I of course, like many men, I was a little slow to figure that out. So, you know, she had to kind of show Help me. Help you along? Yeah. She had to show me what she was talking about. And yeah, a few I, years think, I think what I did was I ignored him. That After actually tried, does amazing things sometimes. And then I ignored him. Yep. It's once I gave up, all he came of a around. he was interested. It was and very then I confusing. was going to add, a few years later, they gave birth to a child that they named Mad Violets. <laughs> <laughs> and there we go. And the story and the fairy tale has arrived. And that is going to lead us into refilling my glass. So part two of Mad Violets coming your way in just a second, as soon as I have some of the 2016 Mantis poured into my lovely glassware. Before we go any further with conversations, because we're having really great conversations in here, we need to put these babies on the mic and talk about and recircle back with what we're just talking about as far as like kind of these different personalities coming together and making something that is both magical and, as Kelly just put it, a little cray-cray. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. I think the wine world does have that line of a little bit crazy that goes with it. Almost obsessive. Yeah. I think on some levels, and I think when you're on the production side and the growing side, it's a completely different crazy obsession than it is when you are just the drinker. Uh, I Yeah, I agree. I think that to get into this industry – I think that the less you know coming in, probably the better chance you have of sticking it out. I think that if people who were considering starting a brand knew all the dirty details, they might, you know, second think it. Although I will say that I've had people come to me and ask about consulting, and I have tried to talk them out of it, and I have not been successful. So it's definitely something that once it gets under your skin, there's kind of no holding back. There's no stopping people who really want to do this, who really find a passion in the winemaking and the production. I know, in fact, I just had a conversation with a friend And when I was in Vegas, he's like, I have got to talk to you about this whole vineyard and wine thing you're doing. He's like, I want to do that when I retire. And I'm like, no, you don't. It's the worst retirement job. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Unless you're an an OCD type person who has to be in something that takes constant, you know, attention. And you have buckets of money. Yeah. I feel and, like it's a young individual's game, though, right? It requires an energy and a, I don't know, a fortitude that... You mean like we were when we right, got into exactly this stuff? exactly right. <laughs> Stamina that you lose over time. Yes, yeah, some, some of all of that. And he kind of looked at me sideways, and he was surprised that I didn't have a label. 
And I didn't have a vineyard yet because we do have property up on Eola Hills. And I'm like, he's like, so when are you going to start yours? I'm like, never, ever, ever. Like, it's so much easier and better for me just to buy all the beautiful wine that's being produced around me. Right. And that my friends are making than me. I just like my cows. They're quiet, usually. They, they're they only around nine months of the year. And they pretty much fend for themselves. Well, and the fun part is the making. There's no question. You know, harvest is such a an exciting, dynamic time. And it's that one time a year that you have to get it right. I mean, we get we get one shot every year. And it's definitely the most exhilarating. It's my favorite time of year. When I deliver fruit to the winery, it's like scoring a touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> we have so many gold moments hand, in these interviews today. Hand off the baby to some, you know, to take care of that you nurtured all season. And now it's your problem. <laughs> yes, for sure. Exactly. And I will say that Sterling never delivers problems. I mean, even on the most difficult vintages, he delivers the most sound, beautiful fruit. He makes my job so easy. Well, it shows that you guys are still married. So I'm thinking if he, you know, showed up with problem children on a regular basis, <laughs> it may have thrown a little thorn in the hole. If he, de <laughs> if he delivered bad fruit, would that be a deal breaker? Yes. I think so. I think so. At least as far as Mad Vance is concerned. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there, there we go. I uh, I remember, you know, with the original interview that you were with Kelly, that and we were talking about the rock star glamour uh, that comes with being a winemaker because it is held in this high regard that these winemakers, all of y'all, are these rock star status, like shiny, sparkling little, you know, gems in the night. It's all true. It's totally it, true. It is true. But it is, <laughs> from what I understand from Kelly, it is sticky and gross. Yeah. And it's not near as glamorous as we all think it is. Right. Behind the scenes, it's very messy. But just like any production that you would do on a stage or, you know, that you would be doing for people, everything from catering and presenting something that you've worked on, you know, you you kind of get rid of the the junk and the dirt when you make the presentation. And all I'm saying is that the, the messy part has to get cleaned up along the way. But when it gets put into the bottle and has a little bottle age and then can express all the hard work that went into it, then it, you know, there's this whole fulfillment feeling that you did a nice job. So, And that feeling can last for years because these wines don't all get drunk immediately and people buy them or drink them over the span of time. And you get appreciation for that over time, when you talk to people who drink the wine, that makes you feel like you were doing the right thing. It's interesting because the fruit comes in. Actually, in the vineyard, I'm paying close attention to what's happening, especially with Sterling's help. I get so much from him. Every time I walk the vineyard with Sterling, I learn something new. And then, you know, deciding the pick date is the hardest part of my job. It's always the hardest thing I do every year is deciding, do we pick today? Do we pick Tomorrow, do we pick three days down the road? Typically, it's happening mid to late September into early October. So I'm battling the weather. We're, you know, either running from the rain or hoping that we get some nice sun breaks after the rain. And then, you know, it's it's in barrel and it's resting, and I'm paying very close attention. Once it's in bottle and it's sent out into the world, it's like sending your child off to college. It's like, okay, I've done all I can. Go out and make me proud. And it's interesting. I don't know if you experienced this, Tom, but there have been times with clients in particular, I've been making wine for them for years, and they'll have these tastings, and they'll invite me to come, and there's vintages and vintages, and I'm looking at this room full of wine, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I made all this wine. And it, it's, it's funny, this disconnect that I have from where I was to where I am now because the cycle starts over and it's it's a brand new year. It's a brand new vintage. It's a brand new cycle. And it's almost as if this disconnect happens between 10, 12, 15, 20 years ago, however bleeding long I've been doing this, that it's like, wow, I kind of have this string of victories behind me that I always forget about. And that's actually really kind of cool because I mean I think it you get to revisit your children down the road and see how they've how they've grown and matured and you hope that they've matured well and that you did your job right in raising them originally. I mean to kind of use kind of a children metaphor. So 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it is. I mean, a lot of people call it their children. And, you know, I ask you which child is your favorite and no one ever has an answer, which is probably a good thing. And honestly, it varies from day to day. Because if you ask, I was gonna say, if you ask my children, <laughs> it depends on who's pissed me off that day, who is the favorite and who is not, you know? And now that the, none of them live with us anymore, they tend to all be my favorites until they want to turn me back into an ATM machine again. And then, you know, they're back at the bottom of the list. So. I feel like you appreciate different aspects of their personality, both your children and your wines. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Nope, for sure. So let's shift a little bit to the wine because we have these beautiful labels that Violet has made. And I love the mantis on them because it is a an insect that is... Beneficial. Yes. Very... Right. Very the, beneficial. The, the queen of the beneficial insects. They are such a cool bug. So don't ever smush them, please. Because they are just, they're, I don't know, they're just. They're not afraid of you either. You no. know, can just put your hand out and they'll get on your hand if you're tempted to get that close. And it's sort of a strange feeling. And Kelly had a whole metaphor about this to interrupt you a little bit, that when we, we came up with the name Ad Violets and then we had the mantis as kind of an artistic uh, portion of the label and it's a stylized mantis head. And then that was before we made a reserve. And when we talked to the designer who put the label together with Violet's artwork assistance, we said, hey, we're going to make a reserve. What do you think? And he said, oh, call it mantis. And so that was a great idea. And then we realized that's the queen of the insects. And if she doesn't like her husband, she, <laughs> she, might, she rips she might, his head off. <laughs> yeah, she might have to you know, take care of him. But it is a powerful symbol and it's a, one of the few insects that you actually kind of stop in your tracks. And that's the point I was making with Kelly was she wants the reserve wine to be something you stop and think about because we're trying to make it very nice and expressive. And that's the same feeling we think of when we see a praying mantis, you sort of stop in your tracks and look at it because it doesn't fly away usually. And if you are bold enough, like I said, you can put your hand out and it'll get on your hand and walk around because it's not afraid of anything. No, they're so cool. They're between them and honeybees are my my two favorites for sure, and both beneficial to everything in our world. Well, and they're so elegant. They and they really are. Yeah, um, they're very they're Slender almost slender and long. And yeah, but kind of cartoony at the same yeah, time. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So I want to definitely talk about the wine here. Um, we're kind of you know kind of running out of time a little bit, but we have had the riesling. And then we have two different Pinot Noirs, and one's a 15, one's a 16. And I know they're probably not made the same because one is a reserve and one, I believe, is just you're kind of almost like a – is it a cuvee or is it is it all – They are both cuvees. Okay. And they are actually both made exactly the same. The difference totally different. Well, the 15 and the 16, we are tasting different yes. vintages. Yep. And it's crazy how the 16 vintage is really coming across as just a fruit bomb. It's just Agreed. so wonderfully juicy and bright and luscious. The difference between our Willamette Valley and our Mantis Reserve is barrel selection. So we go through, once it's in barrel, once it's through malolactic, we'll go through Sterling and I and we'll taste and we'll make little marks on the heads of the barrels in chalk plus, 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 minus. And then at the end of that, whatever gets three pluses or more is the Mantis Reserve. So it's our favorite barrels that Got goes it. into the Mantis Reserve. Totally makes sense. It's a small bottling. I think the most we've done in 2015, we did 175 cases because it was a big vintage. But and this one says 150 on it. Yeah, on the 16. So not did, a lot. Did a little less. So uh, what are the other things that you are making as well? We made Riesling from 2011 until 2018. And then we've decided just in the last couple of years that we're going to go 100% estate. We have a little Chardonnay planted, uh, one acre. That was the Pinot Gris. Sterling planted that in 2020? Uh, uh, 18. 2018. So, time flies. Yeah, time flies. So it's uh, we'll get a little bit this year, and we'll get more next year. And then we have, uh, what is it, two and a half acres of Pinot planted. And so we're just going to use all of our Pinot for ourselves. We won't sell any fruit. And then we'll use all of our Chardonnay as well. The Chardonnay is Pomard and 777. Great clones. I love them together. I love the richness that Pomard brings. But then that triple seven is all strawberry, raspberry. It's all bright, 
fruits like that. So the marriage of the two has always made sense to me. I will ferment them separately, the clones separately, and then we'll do our little barrel tasting and figure out what's going to be in the Mantis and what will be in the Willamette Valley. That sounds like a great plan to me. And it, I mean, and that's the beauty of like a boutique winery. And I think that's a little bit of the misconception that people see and they see, you know, the bigger wineries that have been around for a long time, they do, you know, thousands of cases and they just assume that the wine's better in that. But beauty of a boutique winery is that there is this attention to detail and this true passion and love that goes into every barrel, every bottle. And you pretty much touch every single thing that comes through from start to finish. That's exactly why we do it the way we do it. And I will add that, you know, the bigger guys, they can blend away problems. Dilution is the solution to pollution. But, <laughs> you know, us tiny guys, it's we got to get it right because we don't have that luxury of blending away mistakes or smoke or unsound fruit yes. or, you know, any of the, the many things that we do deal with. I mean, at the end of the day, we're farming. Yep. And that's really where it starts. It starts with the farming. And if you don't get that right, then it's really hard to make great wine when you don't have great fruit, mm-hmm. period. It's hard to have great stir fire when you have, you know, not great veggies to go in that. I mean, so, it, I mean, it it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's this, It's a very similar, you know, kind of idea problem. Right, Got to start with quality ingredients for the outcome to be what you want, which is usually to taste good. Yes. thousand percent. Going back to the acting, it's about the writing. If the writing is shit, it doesn't matter if you've got all your Oscar-winning actors. It's not going to be a very good production. Same thing with fruit. True that. Got to have your good fruit. Yep. Well, with that, let's figure out where people buy wine from you, how they come taste, because you have this sweet little unique tasting shed at the estate that I still have not had the pleasure to actually check out because every time I'm up there, it is muddy, muddy and raining and whatever else. And we just have not ventured down there. Well, we look forward to having you over. It is our little tiny tasting room and it is intimately small in a good way. And it's been fun because we're really only open by appointment. So we have one tasting a week or something like that. And so that's a kind of a relaxed pace compared to, you know, the seven days a week, go, go, go with employees and stuff. So I do most of the tastings at the taste room and Kelly helps or, you know, gets set up. And depending on the group, we just, like I said, have one group at a time and they stay for a couple hours and they can picnic and try the wines and we'll sometimes open five or six wines for them and then they can go back and forth. And it's just been a more relaxed experience there. And we're in the Shayla Mountain AVA. And uh, that's an ever uh, decreasing size because there's more AVAs sharing the the mountain. But there's a new AVA on the north side of Shayla Mountain that's called the um, Laurelwood AVA. And so we're now in the heart of the Shayla Mountain AVA in in Newburgh. So you can find us online, Mm -hmm. madviolatswineco.com. And there you will find ways to get a hold of, it's typically myself, that people will call to ask for an appointment. And then we coordinate our calendars and get people in. Perfect. And I don't want to miss disco because we did mention four at, not seven, four. And we need to mention disco because you have your own fluffy um, vineyard dog that is just, I just want to squish and love him. Yeah, he's about 155 pounds of joy. He's a Tibetan Mastiff, so he's just a big floof. His the, the breeder let us give him his AKC name, and it is Dawa's Disco Blue Jean-Luc Picard, because I'm not a Star Trek fan, but Violet is a big Star Trek fan, and she really insisted that Jean-Luc Picard be in the name. <laughs> So we call him Disco, and he's just delightful. And he has an older brother named Tenzing. Now, Disco just turned one in December, so he's just lots of energy. Full of it. Full of it. Yes. And Tenzing turned 12 in December, so he's a lot less full of it. But they're actually a great duo. 
They love each other and they love people and they're a lot of fun. Okay. Last question. And only because I was going to kind of pass on it today, but I just think these answers could get really interesting. So question as always, you have the choice to hang out, drink wine, and have a snack with one celebrity, dead or alive. Who's it going to be? Which of your wines are you going to take? And what snack are you going to bring along? Tom, you're up because Kelly oh, looks no. perplexed. I'm totally perplexed. Um, I think I know. Okay, oh, go, you go. go for it, Kelly. Yeah. Just just first that came to my head, I'd probably take probably our Chardonnay, and I would like to have dinner with Anthony Bourdain. Ooh. Hmm. I think I'm going to let him choose the food because he's yeah. king yeah. of the food. Let's pick someone that's alive. Go ahead. Okay, Sterling, you're I mean, up then. You, you, no, you. Who, who do you want that's alive? I don't know well. I mean- Barack Obama? <clears throat> I thought it was supposed to be a movie star. I guess it could be anybody. It can, it's famous. Know. It can be anybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do appreciate Mr. Obama and all his years in the White House helping our country. I don't know. I guess I just like to share one with everybody, but I don't necessarily have a star in mind. I do love our Chardonnay, and I think that that would be great to share with anyone. Um, I, I guess along the way, I thought uh, Sean Connery, but again, he's not alive either. <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah, I don't think he's, he's still dead alive. Yet. I yeah, think okay. he, I know he's. I don't think I he's died. I forgot who's dead and who's alive. Sometimes. I know it all kind of blends together. Yeah, this is how rumors get started. Yes. Okay, Tom. I don't know. Yeah, boy, uh, I'd have to think about it more. But I would say, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. It's a to tough one. It. Michael Caine. Yeah. He's alive too. Mm, yep. You had hmm. your chance. Sean Connery is dead. I was right. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yeah. Is he really? Oh, good Lord. We're so sorry, Sean. And Sterling. <laughs> and Sterling. <laughs> and Sterling. I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe Eddie Van Halen. There we go. Yeah. Wow. Another, another guy that has, you know, passed on. Yeah. But, you know, actually, all three of you chose people that have passed on. Yeah. I know. All great, no good colorful. People alive anymore. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, we're going to go grab some grub because we have some great food by Biscuit and Pickles out there because it is St. Patty's Day, which is going to date this show, but I don't really care because we are going to have some great Irish themed stuff. And uh, thank you all for joining us. And this was such a great conversation. So much fun. And, uh, we learned so much. Thank you so much. This Thank was a you. real pleasure. Our pleasure, yes. You make me want to have a vineyard podcast. <laughs> well, I know a guy. Yeah. And, and I actually, I know a space. You and I should do it. We'll be like the car talk guys. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't annoying. <laughs> I'm not sure we have it developed. I'm not sure if my laugh track is as good as theirs. You know, they, that's one thing they were so good at.